Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 is where we're going to start reading this morning. But let's remind ourselves of something. The overarching theme of the book of Hebrews has been that Jesus is greater than. The original readers of the book of Hebrews had been raised in their Jewish community and in their Jewish roots and in the Old Testament, and they had become followers of Jesus Christ. So it is the burden of most of this book, especially the first half of this book or so, to make sure that we understand that Jesus is greater than. Everything the original readers thought was their way to relationship with God, we're told is really a signpost, a marker that points us straight to the one way to God who is Jesus Christ. Everything they had put their hope in would not live up to that hope. These things, a phrase that we've used a couple times in this series, these things cannot bear the weight of the need of the human soul. All of our lasting, eternal, profound needs, none of those things can bear the weight of that. And so we've read all sorts of interesting things, that Jesus is greater than. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the law. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than this curious figure by the name of Melchizedek. He's greater than the patriarch Abraham. He is greater than the order of the priests. He's greater than the high priest and that annual sacrifice. He is greater than the Old Testament temple himself. None of those things could make the way to God possible in the end. None of them bring the kingdom of God into our lives, so none of them can save us. Only Jesus Christ can do all of that. And so it is with us. Everything and anything we place the hope of our lives in, that we ask to do for us what only God can do, will fail that hope. Every one of those things lacks the power and the ability and the dynamic and the provision to take care of our souls, to save us, to bring us into relationship with Jesus Christ. So our passage of Scripture today this morning is a kind of culmination of that idea that Jesus is greater than. And what happens is this is that the writer uses this image of two mountains, okay? That, that's the image that controls this passage. Uses the image of two mountains to finalize this truth that Jesus is greater than all other things. The two mountains that we're going to talk about this morning. First one is this. God's people in the wilderness came to the foot of a mountain that they could not touch. And the writer of Hebrews is going to remind us of what that means and how that looks. In fact, the people, when they came to that mountain in the store in the Old Testament, they had to take two days to purify themselves because God was going to show up on the third day. But even then, after two days of their own purification, there was a line in the sand that they could not cross, a literal, actual line in the sand that if they crossed it, they would die because they would be too close to the holiness of God. And the controlling image of that story is that God is holy and he lives in unapproachable light. And from that position of holiness, he calls only Moses up to the mountain and he gives his law to Moses and to the people. But the separation between God and his people is made clear. We can't draw near to a holy God. So that's the first mountain. The second mountain 
Now we come, says the passage of Scripture, to a different mountain. And it is, in fact, a city. It's the city of the living God. Now, not only can this mountain be touched, but we are actually invited to walk in. We are invited to draw into the center of this city and to begin to live in everything that is made available to us inside of this city. We're invited into this place to be with God's people, to find the saving power of God and to find the kingdom of God here in this brand new city. Now, because of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us, we are told to come closer, to live with and worship our awesome and our great God. As much as anything else, what this passage of Scripture is intended to do is to turn our souls upward, to turn our attention upward, to find gratitude and thanksgiving in awe in what we have been given because of Jesus Christ. So let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. The passage says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight of that sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is what you have come to, the writer says. Well, he begins with this thought. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched. It doesn't matter what translation you read. That is an odd phrase in the English. You have not come to what may be touched. The beginning thought of this passage of Scripture encapsulates the two mountains. The point is this. Your forebearers in the faith in the Old Testament, they wandered through the wilderness for a little while until they actually came to the foot of a physical, literal mountain. It was a mountain that outside of the presence of God, you could actually walk up and you could touch. You could grab the dirt. You could hold it in your hands. And what the writer is saying is that that's the mountain they came to. You've come to not a natural mountain, but a supernatural mountain. Right? So we've got this controlling image of these two places, these two mountains that we come to here in Scripture. So they came to something that we could, they could touch. We've come to something that right now we cannot physically touch like that. But what a mountain it was, this mountain that they came to in the Old Testament. This is a big deal. This passage of Scripture is not intended to say, now that story in the Old Testament really is no longer all that important because of what has happened now in Jesus Christ. In fact, the point of the story is this. This story in the Old Testament is so important, it's going to amaze us how much better the kingdom is that has been given to us by Jesus Christ. The first mountain that's talked about in this passage of Scripture is Mount Sinai. 
Some of you may have sort of picked up what the story is referring to as we read it here in the book of Hebrews. It's Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is the place where God chose to meet with Moses and give him the law. So this is about as monumental a moment in the Old Testament as possible. The story that's referred to here in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 happens in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 is the preparation for the conversation between God and Moses beginning in chapter 20 in which God then gives Moses the law, the law in the Old Testament. So Israel in Exodus chapter 19 has come to the mountain. They've encamped around the mountain. And when they've done that, God then gathers Moses and the priests and the tribes, uh, the tribal leaders of Israel. And then God sets limits around the mountain. He said, now everybody else can't come any closer than this particular limit around the mountain. And then he eventually calls Moses up to the top and he begins the law by giving Moses the Ten Commandments. That's the first thing that happens in Exodus chapter 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments. So this is a monumental moment for the people of God. The emphasis in the way that chapter is structured, the emphasis is on the holiness of the moment. The supernatural weight of the moment. It's going to be so overwhelming that God says you have to keep your distance or else you will die when my glory shows up. So when God arrives, and he's actually going to come and step on this mountain. When God arrives, the mountain will be holy. We will not be able to bear it, so keep out. It's the emphasis of Exodus chapter 19. Here's part of how that story goes in verses 10, 11, and 12 of that chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or to touch the edge of it, for whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And then something incredible happens through the second half of Exodus chapter 19, God comes and he rests his presence on top of that mountain. And when he does so, Hebrews 12 alludes to it, and Exodus 19 um, walks us through the whole thing. When he does so, there is thunder and there is lightning. There are clouds and there is smoke. The text in Exodus 19 actually says the top of the mountain was like a chimney of smoke shooting up into the heavens. The mountain shakes and the people tremble and God begins to speak and it sounds like rolling thunder coming down the side of that mountain. This is an awesome, incredible moment. No wonder the people of God have been given this limit. If you come any closer to this, you're not going to be able to bear the presence of the holiness and the glory of God. So to feel the sense of what's happening in this passage, I want to make sure we understand this concept. Guys, when the presence of God shows up, His glory is weighty. That's an interesting way of putting this. When the presence of God shows up, His glory is weighty. Now, the word in the Old Testament that's used to talk about the glory of God is the word chabod. And the first meaning of that word chabod is weight. And the glory of God 
is so significant, so weighty, so important that everywhere the glory of God shows up, it is the weightiest thing in the room. It's the most important thing happening in that place. So when the presence of God shows up, when his glory arrives, it is clear that he is Lord in that place. This is the image of the glory and the holiness of God showing up. So you read Exodus 19, we read Hebrews chapter 12, and we see that his presence and his glory are too much for unholy people, so they tremble in his presence. It's too much for a mountain. And so when God steps on this mountain, the mountain begins to shake when God arrives. Can you imagine someone or something that can step their foot on the top of Pike's Peak that causes the entire mountain range to begin to rumble because of its glory and weight? As a matter of fact, we get another fascinating image of this kind of thing. It happens in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is taken into the presence of God, and he sees the very throne room of God in the heavens, and he sees the seraphim flying around the throne, singing, Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. And the text then says that the foundations of the heavens shook. God is so glorious that even the heavens themselves shake at his presence. We're being taught something about God and our need for this God through the setup here in Hebrews chapter 12, the story of Exodus 19 and 20. We are in desperate need of this holy and this great God, but the way to him is blocked. There is this unpassable chasm between our sin and his glory and his holiness. So the law is given in this moment. Then we move on through history and the Apostle Paul, who was also raised with the importance of the law, he tells us in the New Testament, he says, look guys, the law was given to us as a teacher. And what the law teaches us is how glorious and holy God is and that I am a sinner in need of repentance. That I am the kind of person who needs his forgiveness. I cannot accomplish that myself. I need God to do that for me. So in the Old Testament law, there's this elaborate system that's set up to remind us of our need for this forgiveness, to remind us of the need for our cleansing of sins, to remind us of the need for the bridging of this chasm. It's the system of priests and sacrifices. And so the book of Hebrews talks about this. And it says, now look, guys, all of us know that the priests stand. They can't sit down because of all the work that they have to do. And they offer sacrifices day after day and week after week and year after year. But none of it finishes the task. None of it actually accomplishes the goal of making sure that my soul is right with God. It's a fascinating thing. Here's part of how that's put in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It is complete. It is finished. Waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, For by a single offering, 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We learn that there is this unpassable chasm that needs to be bridged for me. I can't do it. But there is one who can, and there is one who did, and it is Jesus Christ. A single sacrifice that solved this, where the priests stand because they have to do this all day long, drenched in the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus does it once, drenches himself in his own blood, and is risen from the grave, ascended into the heavens, seated on the right hand of the throne of God, and is our soon incoming king. Christ has done it all. That's the mountain that our forebears in the faith came to. That's the lesson that's being taught to us in that mountain. And then the author turns his attention on you and me. He says, but you have come to a different mountain. You have come to a place that has been secured for you by Jesus Christ. And hold on to this thought, guys. He's going to tell us that is a mountain that is unshakable. It is a mountain that is unshakable. But you have come, he says in verse 22, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and on the story goes. This is something else entirely that we've been given in Jesus Christ. It is, in its way, the completion of the first mountain. Everything that was promised, everything that was taught there, is now offered here in what Christ is giving us. Everything that was taught to us in that mountain is now given to us in Jesus Christ. And he says, this mountain is God's city, Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Your English teacher gets bothered by the mixing of metaphors. Scripture is not at all bothered by the mixing of metaphors. It's a mountain. Yes, it is. It's the city of the living God. You bet it is. (laughs) It's the gospel. It's the good news that only comes with Jesus Christ. One scholar said this is the rhetorical pinnacle of the book of Hebrews. And if you like those kinds of phrases and words, you can walk away with that one. The rhetorical pinnacle of the book of Hebrews. There's no real explanation at this point. We've reached the end of the book. We've talked about these kinds of things. Throughout this text, the writer says, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to list. I'm going to tell you what's available in this city. I'm going to tell you everything that you have been given. Given because of the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to let you know everything that is inside of this city. There was a mountain that said, you have to stay away. Now there is a city where the doors are open and the Spirit says, come. Come in further. Come in deeper and see what God has given you. So the point of this passage is just look, learn, Everything that is offered in this city, all of it is the work of Jesus Christ. All of it is the handiwork of the righteousness and the power and the love of God. And all of it is the perfection of worship and joy. This kingdom that has been promised, this kingdom that has been described, 
is now amongst us. We can actually live in it. We can actually taste it. And if you are a child of God, you know for sure by the guaranteed seal of the Holy Spirit that someday this will be our eternity. Look at what's in this city, the text says. It is the city of our living God. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem, especially in the image of the Old Testament and then even into the New. It is, this is where the temple is. This is where you come to worship God. This is where the idea is in the Holy of Holies. This is where the presence of God is. But that's all going to be remade. And instead of an earthly city that can be conquered by the Romans, we now have a heavenly Jerusalem that is where God's presence actually is and where it consumes the rest of the universe. This is God's city. God is here. Everything that comes with his presence is here. Everything you need from God is here, provided by Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Now, here's part of how this city is described. At the end of the book of Revelation, which itself sort of gives us that that final vision of what this eternity is and what the city of Jerusalem is. We actually get the engineering plans for the city of Jerusalem in the book of Revelation chapter 21, but we also get the sense of what it means. Listen to this, Revelation 22. They will see his face. They is who? It's you. It's the child of God. This is not feel his face, sense his face, Catch a glimpse of his face. Scripture says, we will see him face to face as he is. We will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. That's a biblical image of ownership. We will be gods forever. And night will be no more. Everything that comes with darkness is just gone. Isn't that incredible? They will need, we will need, no light of lamp or even of sun, for the Lord God will be their lights, and they will reign forever and ever. Every ounce of darkness, every ounce of sin, every ounce of fear, every ounce of anxiety, every ounce of pain, every moment of death, gone. And he will be their light, and they will reign with him forevermore. Isn't this incredible, guys? This is the city we've been brought to, the city of the living God. Then I like this. It's filled with angelic beings and with the fellowship of those who are redeemed, filled with Jesus Christ. It's filled with angelic beings and the fellowship of the redeemed, too innumerable to count and too full of thanksgiving and worship to be stopped in festal gathering, in perpetual worship and perfect joy. An innumerable crowd of every brother and sister in Christ, of every saved and redeemed soul, of every sinner made perfect by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the crowd. (laughs) This is the scene This is the group now that we stand with worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The text then says that God, the judge of all, is there. And that his children made perfect by his forgiveness and his mercy are here. 
This has been beautiful. This has been incredible. This is attractive. Why talk about God the judge is here? Guys, we, we neglect this reality of the nature of God to our own detriment. Look, every human soul desires evil to be judged. Every human soul wants evil to be judged. The complication is, by and large, our culture misunderstands what is evil and who gets to be judged. The only person, that's the only thing that's wrong, right? (laughs) Other than that, everything's fine. The only creature in the universe who has the right and the wisdom and the power to make final every judgment about righteousness and evil is God, the creator of all things. So in the presence of God, all evil is dealt with for all of eternity. It's done. All righteousness is fulfilled. The goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of God now fills every atom of creation. All righteousness is fulfilled. And every repentant soul is given eternity. Those who've been perfected, did you catch that language in this text? Have been perfected by the work of Jesus Christ. They are there as well. And then because this book is primarily about Jesus is greater than everything, the final thought in this list here in verse 24, and we have come now to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, Abel's the first story of sacrifice in the Old Testament, a sacrifice that a human gives. Abel Abel gives an acceptable sacrifice to God, and he dies for it. And that speaks a certain kind of word of what it means to sacrifice appropriately, appropriately to God. But now we have this one single sacrifice that speaks better things than any and every sacrifice in the Old Testament. We've come to Jesus, the one who makes all of this possible. Our Savior is greater than everything that went before. He is greater than everything today that promises you and me salvation. Greater than all of it. And He is the only one that makes all of this possible. What the writer of the book of Hebrews does next is actually the habit of the writer of the book of Hebrews. He gives us this example of what Christ now does for us. And he tells us what is possible in Jesus Christ. And then the next thing he does is this. Don't blow it, Christian. (laughs) See to it that you enter this. That you never let this go. It's the pattern of the book. It's the final thought of the book. So here's how he puts it here in chapter 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
See to it, Christian, the writer says. Don't refuse him who is speaking. God who speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. God the Holy Spirit who speaks to his children still yet today. Don't turn a blind ear to the voice of God. Don't give up on this. Don't ignore what you've heard. Don't turn away. I know. I know that there are pressures and reasons for us on a daily basis to push our Christian faith into the background and into the shadows so that its more embarrassing bits won't be seen in the light. I know those pressures exist. The writer of Hebrews looks at us square in the eyes and says, don't do it. Look at what you've been given. Nothing this world can offer you can ever match what Jesus Christ has given to you in his kingdom. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't cease to speak up for it. Don't lose your courage about everything that is true about the story of Jesus Christ. See, the problem is is that most of the Old Testament is full of the story of the people of God rejecting the voice of God. Moses and the prophets, they speak God's word to his people, but they would much rather hear something else. And so they ignore the offer of repentance and entrance into the life of God. This happens over and over and over in the story of the people of God. And it continues to happen over and over and over. See if this sounds familiar to you. God's people liked the prophet who told them good things. People don't like prophets who offer peace <laughs> peace and the blessedness of God on the other side of repentance and obedience. Well, if you can talk to me about peace and prosperity without repentance and obedience, I'll show up. But if you want to talk about the kingdom of God through the truth of Jesus Christ and what he demands of us, the writer of Hebrews says, don't stop listening to that. Because our inclination is to hear the voices we want to hear instead of the voices that God sends to us. The voices we want to hear or the voices we need to hear. So the story is that God actually offers us His life. But in our sin, what we decide to do is choose another way of life, and that path leads to nothing but destruction. God reaches out to us, and we, through His Son, Jesus Christ, have the opportunity to hear and to return to Him. If they rejected voices on earth, Moses and the prophets, how much more will we be shamed of what we do, punished for what we do, if we reject Him who speaks from heaven? This is, in fact, the idea that opens the book of Hebrews. Let's remind ourselves of those first couple of verses, Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He also created the world. They had the prophets. We have Jesus Christ. Don't reject Him who is speaking to you now. And then we return to the mountain imagery. 
And this time we begin to talk about something that happened to that first mountain. When the glory of God showed up, it shook. It couldn't bear the weight of God. And so the writer returns to that thought and says this in verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. On Mount Sinai, the voice of God came. And the thunder rolled down the side of the mountain. The ground shook and the people trembled. But there is coming a time when the God of all creation will shake all of creation and it will be gone. That's quite something. And the text quotes from this magnificent little minor prophet by the name of Haggai. And I know when we read the quote, all of you thought, well, of course, I just read Haggai last night, right? How many of you can even find the book of Haggai? How many of you knew the book of Haggai was in the Old Testament, right? It's this cool little book, and the prophet Haggai is speaking at a time in the people, in the time of the history of God, when, when they're rebuilding the temple, and they're rebuilding the city, and God is rebuilding his culture and his presence amongst them. And in that passage, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, where this comes from, God is saying stuff like this, don't be afraid, work hard for me, my spirit is with you, and the day is coming when I will not only rest in this temple and it will shake, but I will shake all of the heavens and the earth with my glory because everything belongs to me. That's what he says there in Haggai chapter 2. I want to make sure that we make this point clear because the writer wants us to know this before he finishes his thought. If something can be shaken, it can be destroyed. If something can be shaken, it can be destroyed. If something cannot be shaken, it cannot be destroyed. That's the image happening here in the last part of this passage of Scripture. If you can imagine the things that you could put inside of your hands and shake them until you've destroyed them, that's a fairly small list of things, right? You stick it in your hands, you just have the power to shake it until it's destroyed. It's a small list of things. If you can imagine the things that we as a human race, if we combine all of our technology and power and ingenuity, the kinds of things that we can shake and destroy together, well, that's a much larger list of things. And in fact, on a certain level, that grows a little bit frightening and, and bothersome. The things that we can destroy with our power and ingenuity and technology and evil and sin. But even when you list all of those things and then you take a broader look at the rest of the universe, it is a minute speck of anything that we can touch and shake and destroy. The vast majority of the universe is unshakable by us. But you see, the point is this. The power of God is so vast and it is so massive that all of the galaxies and every square inch of space in between them can be taken in His hand, shaken and destroyed, and the day is coming when that will happen. Listen to how Scripture puts it in some other places. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter the disciple writes to a group of Christians probably in the city of Rome. And he says this. Now listen to how this language dovetails with what we've been reading here in Hebrews chapter 12. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. You remember part of what we were promised in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12? This city where the living God is, is the place where the redeemed live forever. The people who have been perfected by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is where righteousness dwells. This is incredible stuff. And we go back to the book of Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Almost an overwhelming promise given to us here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. There it is, guys, the city of the living God. New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In Jesus Christ... We have come to the one thing in all of creation that cannot be shaken. Therefore, the day is coming, the Lord says, when the heavens and the earth will be shaken. So let us be thankful, the writer of Hebrews says, that we have been given a kingdom that is unshakable. The things of God cannot be jarred or dissolved, or marred, or shaken, or picked apart at by us and our sin. It is pure and holy and glorious, and we are invited into it. It's incredible, guys. There is nothing, there is no one, there's no group of people who has the power to take the kingdom of God in their hand and shake it until it is destroyed. So, friend, if you are a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ, what you have been given cannot be taken away from you. No one can remove it from your hand. And even if they take your physical life from you, you enter into the perfection of the kingdom that you taste now. It is never taken away from you. This is what God has given us. Nothing can separate us, Romans says, from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we started using this word at the beginning of our time together, and I want to finish by using this word as well. Where then is my hope? Where then is my life? Where have I put down roots, spiritually, relationally, emotionally? Where where have I put these roots down in my life? You know, I think there's actually a way to discover where I have put my hope in my life. And here's how I think you do it. My hope is where my heart ends up. It is where my life is willing to head when everything else seems out of control. So if things seem out of control, where do I go to put things back into control? Where do I go to fix the problems that I've discovered that I can't fix 
Is there something inside of my life, someone, some job, some whatever it is, some piece of education that says, well, if I lean in on this, it will fix all of that. That is where my hope is. And so we have this instinct inside of us with our brokenness and our sinfulness. Our instinct is to put our hope in things like ourselves, our capacities, our bank account, our background, our potential and possibilities. I don't know about yours, but my list of all of those things is really small. <laughs> I'm a bad place for me to put my hope. And you ask Heather all about that. <laughs> we want to put our hope in things like our network of family and friends. As good as those things can be, those things are not our eternal hope. We want to put our hope in careers and finances. Sometimes, guys, our addictions reveal to us where our hope lies. It's where we go when emotionally we have no place else to go. Our culture has decided for some reason that politics is our savior right now. How's that going for us, right? But we already know something about all of these things, and we could list these things all day long. As good and as influential as many of them really can be, all of them will be shaken. All of them will be shaken. And if these are the only places that we have for hope, then despair is knocking at the door. That sounds you here, that's despair. If this is where we've put our hope, that's what's coming our way. But guys, in Christ, there is a place we can live a place for our hope that cannot be touched by the things in this world that harm what we love. It cannot be touched by the enemy of our souls. It is not decayed by our sin, but instead our sin is cleansed in this kingdom. This kingdom is not darker for our presence in it. We are made brighter because of God's presence in it. It is ruled over by a God who is a consuming fire. Evil meets its end here, and sin and pain are burned away like dry twigs. And so the text says we respond. We put our hope for this life and eternity in Jesus Christ. And we then offer worship that is acceptable to this kind of eternal gracious and powerful God, and we do it in reverence and in awe. Let's pray.